Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Pim Fox, along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day, we bring you the most important, noteworthy, and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find the Bloomberg PL Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and Bloomberg.com. It feels like something has shifted pretty significantly in the U.S. Treasury market. And here to talk about that with us is Jim Vogel, an interest rate strategist at FTN Financial based in Memphis, Tennessee. Jim, thank you so much for joining us. You've absolutely nailed this market again and again. So uh, right now we are looking at 10-year Treasury yields that are 2.85% creeping up from the highs of last week. Um, how much more do we have to go here? We're looking at the highest 10-year Treasury yields since January 2014. We've compressed about into three weeks what many people thought the market would do in terms of um, increasing rates by, say, the third quarter. So where we continue to go, it's, it's easy to see that the 10-year could head toward 290 or so before it begins to even catch a breath. We see um, really about the next two to three weeks, people redoing their strategies and thinking through where do they want to be buying 10s and 30s in particular. So, Jim, why are people going to be reassessing their strategies uh, strategies now? What changed? Uh, So many things changed about the yield curve. Uh, It had been flattening very hard. The 30-year was a star last year. You returned 9% in a 30-year government. Now everything is turning in the opposite direction without any buying to come in at these new higher levels yet. So in that kind of perspective, you've got to sit back and look at your strategy, not only in treasuries, but also in corporates. Well, Jim, uh, what would you suggest, given what you know about people's positioning? And I'm just curious if you can also add in the supply and demand of treasuries. Absolutely. Right now, um, in particular, what the seven-year part of the curve has been hurt because they've just been trading almost one for one with tens. But nobody really trades the seven-year as a hot item. It just follows. So for, in particular, retail investors, intermediate bond funds, if they want to take advantage of this move, that's a great place to try. Uh, In terms of supply and demand, uh, we've got uh, the next three months is going to see are going to see progressively higher treasury supply, and then the treasury will reassess probably with at least one more um, significant increase uh, when they announce the May refunding in three months. So, Jim, you said that uh, people should reassess their strategies not only for uh, U.S. government bond markets, but also for corporates. Uh, If you look at spreads, the extra yield that investors earn over the benchmark rate, you could see that it really has not increased for investment-grade corporate bonds, but it has increased for high-yield bonds. Do you think that that actually makes sense and that you should expect the sell-off to continue there with both the spreads rising in tandem uh, with rising benchmarks? Mark rates. So far, the sell-off in high yield is taking back a lot of the profits that were generated just last month. So we won't know until we get a little bit higher in terms of, of the high yield spreads before we know whether that's a trend or just a bounce. Jim, I'm oh, sorry, I beg sorry. your pardon. Go ahead. No, please. No, no. Go ahead. Finish your thought. 
I've now lost the question. So. Oh, I bet. <laughs> Go ahead. Save me, Lisa. Save well, me. no, Jim, you know, I'm just thinking, what is sort of the threshold yield for 10-year treasuries uh, that you would recommend people start buying? There isn't one yet. And and that's exactly what we've learned the last couple of weeks. Until you begin to see any sign that people are not are, have stopped moving and racing ahead in terms of their inflation expectations, there is no place to necessarily immediately step in and buy the 10-year. Instead, we have, it's much easier to see fair value relative to what the Fed might do in, say, the five-year or the three-year. So, so we've got to wait for we've got to uh, wait eh, a week, two weeks, just before people really can start doing that strategy on tens and thirties. All right. So if people really can't do that strategy yet, and they aren't necessarily going to come in and buy, what does that mean for equity markets? Because uh, we've seen a whole host of analyses come out over the weekend talking about just what the rise in Treasury yields means for stock markets, right? Because a lot of people were talking about the Fed model, a lot of people. We're talking about how uh, the dividend yields were paying more at one point uh, than you could get on benchmark treasuries. So if that equation changes, are you really going to see selling continue in the U.S. stock indices, despite the fact that earnings have actually come in pretty, pretty good? It depends if the equity market slows down in terms of volatility. Um, the, you will not see people really, you will not see the bond market hurt stocks. So as soon as we can pause in stocks and people can catch their breath there as well, uh, the stock market remains largely uh, unrelated to rates for the moment. Think about last year. Um, Income grew 4.1%, spending grew 4.7%. That was confidence in all sorts of different things, including the stock market. That confidence is not going to leak out that quickly in terms of the drivers of the economy until stocks really begin to disappoint for perhaps several weeks in a row. Jim, at the 3% level, at least for the tenure, we're now at 2.85%. At that point, aren't you going to see big demand from pension funds, life companies, other firms? I mean, because don't they have to immunize themselves against liabilities? Uh, they do, but I don't think there's necessarily one particular level where they will begin to come in uh, with enough strength to overcome the selling. At some points last week, you know, particularly right after non-farm payroll reports on Friday, uh, the selling volume was two times the busiest that we've seen over the past couple of years when we had a surprising payroll number. So the, there's one group of people that are selling bonds extraordinarily fast. The buyers that will be coming in or want to pick up um, bonds at a higher interest rate, they're going to move much more slowly. I want to thank you very much for joining us. Jim Vogel is interest rate strategist of FTN Financial. They're based in Memphis. What if money fell from the heavens? What would be the effect on growth and inflation? Well, here to help us answer this question is Joel Stern. He is the chairman and the chief executive of Stern Value Management, and he joins us here in our 1130 studios. Joel Stern, thank you very much for being here. So indeed, if money were to uh, drop from the sky, what would happen to growth and inflation? People would, in the initial expectation... Strong profits, strong growth, 
it looks like paradise. But I have to admit to you, Pam, my teacher Milton Friedman <laughs> asked us that question on the first day of class. He said, if money rained down from the heavens, what would happen? And of course, he got the right answer. <laughs> the rest of us did not. Because, he said, companies would compete against each other with this additional monies, and they would lower prices to the consumer in order to try to gain market share. And I believe that's going to happen here, too. Don't get me wrong. The size of it is so huge, there's enough to go around for everybody. Uh, so my answer to you is that I don't think we would have inflation from it. I think what we would do is we would have lower prices to the consumer. So can you connect this, Joel, to markets, to, to, the, to sort of how you invest? Because uh, I was struck by a statistic that of S&P 500 companies that have reported so far, 80% have beaten Wall Street expectations for revenues, right. uh, which is the biggest beat going back in data to at least 2008. Uh, so is that already baked in? It is baked in, for sure. The price today is the present value of tomorrow. What's actually happened, what's interesting about the, uh, the, the uh, economy right now, is the economy is poised to grow at at least 3%. I believe it's going to be a lot higher than that. I think it'll be close to 4%. And when people say, oh, that we don't have enough people coming into the workforce, remember they talk about productivity and population growth. Do me a favor. Relax, would you please? You'll be really fine. What's, what's the answer to this? So many people left the workforce during the last, say, 10, 12, 15 years. Right now, the participation rate is only around 63%. Think about it. I believe it's going to move up over 70%, and that will be the equivalent of immigrants coming into the country and joining the workforce. So what I'm hearing from you is dampened inflation expectations, frankly, because even with all this money, you're going to have more competition on both sides, both with employees coming into the workforce as well as companies that are competing with each other. This does not uh, scream of, of runaway inflation to well, I got me. some bad news. <laughs> all right. <laughs> all right lay it out. It occurred to me that maybe when you said all of this, I should have said, very nice, Lisa. I think we should go on to the next topic, but we cannot do it. And what's the reason? The reason is that the gold price is still sitting at $1,334 or thereabouts. As interest rates rise, if the interest rates that are rising are because of higher real rates, not inflation, that's good for the economy because that's a signal to the rest of the world, hey, come on to the United States, high rates of return are available here. That's what you'd expect to have happen. But you see, what's happened is that with the rates rising, by this time, the gold price should be down around 1250 Now, how do I know? It happened before. When Trump won, interest rates rose dramatically. And I, I, I had the pleasure of talking to Pim, not to you, unfortunately, at that time. But he asked me this question, and I said, I got news. Take a look at what's happening to the gold price. As the rates went up, the gold price went down. That meant inflation was tame. We wouldn't have to worry. But if interest rates rise and the gold price does not fall, it must mean that there is some inflation in there that we're going to see at the end of this year. Can we just assume for a moment that there is going to be an acceleration in inflation, just kind of to be yes. devil's advocate? Sure. What, what is a good investment? Is it gold? Yes, it would be. 
It would be. Gold would be a good investment. But real estate is always a good investment unless it has already reflected all of this and so it's already in the price. But I, I believe that uh, real estate is just a fantastic investment if you think the inflation rate is coming back. I'm surprised to hear that given the fact that Janet Yellen over the weekends pinpointed commercial real estate values in particular as being uh, particularly frothy or, or heady in valuation. It's a good thing she's going back to academia, huh? <laughs> she can pontificate a little she bit is more. Fun, by more. the way, she is a lovely, lovely human being. Her position, though, on how markets work is not the same as my own. Uh, I am a true blue Chicago boy. Uh, I'm a, I, I was bred by Milton Friedman and Merton Miller, and I believe that markets actually do work. What we have to do is develop models that replicate what the markets are doing so we can see it clearly before it actually happens instead of waiting for it to happen, and then everybody else is telling the same story. Talk, if you can, about regulations and how regulations or the lack of regulations can spur economic growth. I spoke to people in the admi current administration before they were the current administration way back two years ago uh, this coming July. I was teaching in Brazil at that time, and I had questions coming in from people who now have very authoritative positions in the administration. And I said, you got to do three things, just three. Number one, slash the regulations. Why? Because regulations not only lower the rate of return on investment, they increase the risk of investment because today's regulation becomes tame compared to what they'll do to us tomorrow. In other words, when, when, when Hillary Clinton was running, she said, you think the regulations under the Obama administration is on me? Wait till I get in there. Right. I'm going to really whack. Okay. So, number two, slash the marginal tax rate. Our tra 26 major trading partners had an average tax rate of only 22% when ours was in the high 30s, if you include city and state. You can't compete that way. Uh, by the way, I have three firms that I, I, I'm involved with, okay? And one of our firms is headquartered in Singapore. The tax rate there is around 17%. What should I do? Bring the money back to the United States and get hit a second time? So uh, yeah. real quick, I want to get your take on Wells Fargo because we have this feeling that regulation is moving uh, in the opposite direction than what the Fed seems to have done with Wells Fargo. Do you think that this is sort of the opening salvo or sort of the... Uh... I am so disgusted. I don't know what to say to you, Lisa. Look, when people do things that are, what shall we call them, fraudulent, they should be banished from the industry. Remember when Michael Milken was told his infraction was minor. These people created things that didn't exist, and they seem to have gotten away with it. I the thing that I was unhappy about with Janet Yellen is that she should have acted on this as soon as she found it out, as soon as they verified it, and using my uh, vocabulary, they should have been spanked. All right. Joel Stern, from your words, uh, from your lips, uh, to perhaps the uh, new Fed chair's ears. Joel Stern, Chairman and Chief Executive Officer of Stern Value Management. Always a pleasure speaking with you. Uh, this is Bloomberg Markets. Time is money especially if you have airtime during the Super Bowl. And here to talk to us a little bit about the advertisements that you saw last night uh, during the 52nd Super Bowl is John Swallen, Chief Research Officer of Cantor Media, which is based in New York. 
John, I want to start with the price tag for 30 seconds. More than $5 million was how much uh, companies paid for that time. Is it worth it? For many companies, it is, yes. Um, Companies are not just paying for the 30 seconds of ad time. They're actually rolled up in that in the value of that $5 million investment um, is are some other things that I think brands consider and that help justify. John, um, for one, uh, I'm I mean, sorry, just one, give us some fi- some figures, if you can, just in terms of the actual total amount that's been spent. Sure. Um, so the total, we estimate that the total amount of, of money spent on the game last night was approximately $415 million that's for the commercials that aired between kickoff and the final whistle, um, which would make it the second highest Super Bowl of all time after 2017. Is that considered to be a win for NBC? Um, yes, it is. Um, it's a win every year for whichever network gets to, to carry the game. Um, and NBC also was able to use that as a platform to promote their upcoming Olympics telecasts, um, which will also be a financial windfall for them. So they had a nice synergistic effect there. John, one thing that I noticed, I was looking over some of the notes uh, that you put out, just sort of uh, some conclusions from the Super Bowl and the advertisements, and there was a pretty notable drop-off in the number of companies that were advertising during the Super Bowl for the first time. Uh, The percent of first-time parent companies dropped just 11% this year from 22% Mm -hmm. last year. What happened? Why so many fewer entrants to this field? Um, I think parlates the price tag, um, $5 million for a 30-second spot, plus the additional costs for creating a commercial, um, promoting it on social media, and so forth, um, is a big hit for many of the small companies that make up those first-time advertisers. Um, so I think this year there was perhaps a little bit more price sensitivity. Um, that can you know, that, that can happen. It's a, it's a big investment for small companies. Who do you think was the most successful at their advertising? Um, I think everybody has a different metric. Um, if you take a look at the consumer popularity polls, I'm sure that the Amazon Alexa ad and the NFL ad with uh, Eli Manning and Odell Beckham doing their version of Dirty Dancing. I love I'm sure that. Those will, I'm sure those <laughs> will end up on the, you know, it's probably the top two in terms of consumer popularity. But in terms of, of long-term payout um, and brand effectiveness, um, I actually think that a brand like um, Tide Um, had a very interesting media strategy, um, running one commercial in each of the four quarters. And they weren't obvious commercials when they started out that, hey, this is a commercial for Tide. It wasn't until sort of the end of the commercial that it all came together and tied together. Um, I I think that was a a very effective strategy for P&G. John, there was a lot of talk leading up to this Super Bowl about the politicization of football and how uh, viewership had actually gone down as people viewed the sport is becoming increasingly political. Do we have any preliminary uh, assessments of what viewership was like last night uh, or whether some advertisers shied away from uh, perhaps participating this time around because of all that drama? Um, the viewership figures won't be announced until won't be out until later today. Um, so I, I can't tell you how many people watch the game. In terms of the advertisers and their approach, um, there certainly was less advertising of a, of a political or social issue nature this year as compared to last year. Um, and I think that reflects the fact that you know in our increasingly polarized environment, 
um, taking any kind of a, of a stand, pro or con, on any sort of an issue. Um, it's just a, a landmine that marketers don't want to get involved with, particularly on a stage as um, public as the, as the Super Bowl. And so the, the corporate ads, the, you know, the, the ads that weren't plugging brands per se, um, like the Budweiser ad promoting their water relief efforts, were taking things of a more humanitarian approach, um, kind of a safe issue that nobody could object to. Um, so I think that was the, the strategic difference this year. John, I have to wonder whether you're seeing an increasing number of ads direct viewers to their websites to watch longer sagas. I saw that uh, was certainly a part of some of the strategies, but is that an increasing one? Um, it's not increasing only because it's been a very common tactic for you know for the last ten years or so. Um, you know, many companies are, are putting their commercials out um, online, uh, you know, up to a week in advance of the Super Bowl promoting them through YouTube, promoting them through social media, um, and leaving them there after the game so people can go back and watch them a second time. Um, so the social media wraparound um, is, is very well integrated into brand's strategy for Super Bowl advertising. Thank you very much for joining us. John Swallen is the Chief Research Officer for Kantar Media. He joins us from New York, giving us his perspective on Super Bowl advertising. Well, a lot has changed in the retail world since 1979. And here to tell us more is Lindsay Rupp, our specialty retail reporter for Bloomberg News. Lindsay can be followed on Twitter at LC Rupp, and you can listen to her podcast, Lindsay's Material World Podcast. It is at Bloomberg.com slash podcast material slash uh, rather, underscore world. All right, Lindsay, thanks for being being here. Um, I just want to start off with a little news about Bonton stores because I was looking today, bankruptcy, doesn't look like anyone's going to come and really throw them a lifeline. And they, uh, if you go to their website, up to 70% off. What happens when they get to 100% off? Does that mean they, they start to sell things? <laughs> you know, I don't know what it's going to take for them to sell things. The The problem is for all these retailers, there are just too many stores and people have more options than ever for places to shop. And so if it's not a great experience or it's not on trend or it's not the right product, you have other options. You're not loyal anymore. So, Lindsay, you wrote a piece and I found it fascinating about how this sort of death of retail has been a long time coming. Can you explain? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, apparel retail specifically is plagued by a myriad of, of issues. And it's, you know, it's really easy to say, oh, it's Amazon. Amazon's killing these apparel retailers and, and companies like Bonton. But it really is so much more than that. You know, it's uh, it's that these apparel retailers got really slow in terms of it takes a long time for them to get product to market. And then you've got H&M and Zara who can get on-trend styles to you in weeks. Or uh, it's the fact that people have more options of places to shop. Or it's the fact that prices have been driven down by discounters and by fast fashion companies. And so you don't want to pay full price for a white t-shirt because you can get it almost anywhere for less. Um, it's it's just so many different factors that are really hurting the apparel industry, and they've been really slow to transform. And I think we're starting to see and we'll continue to see the fallout from that. Well, Lindsay, you mentioned that there are a variety of things that are contributing to this. No one needs to buy a separate wardrobe for their workplace anymore. You also mentioned that things such as neckties seem to be disappearing from at least the uh, most heavily purchased of items, as well as the introduction of... Uh, 
sort of new trendsetters who are not celebrities, they're all over social media. Right. I mean, the societal and cultural shifts and the way that we think about fashion uh, is a huge problem for the apparel industry. So it used to be that you'd spend money on your wardrobe because, you know, the fashion industry was telling you these things are on trend. You need to have them. You know, you wanted to Dress look good for at work. Success. Yeah, exactly. You wanted to look good in your workplace, but then you had a different look for the weekend. None of that's really true anymore. I mean, people really can kind of wear what they wear to work out. Casual Friday is not just Friday anymore. So you don't need to buy two different wardrobes. And you can look online to celebrities or people who you find uh, interesting and see what they're wearing. You don't have to look to the magazines. So if you look at from a market's perspective, this has been going on for a while. And this has sort of been a slow moving, destructive train. How can retailers assess what a right-sized retailer looks like now and when we've moved past the sort of carnage stage into one where you can rebuild for a modern era? I think that's the question everyone's trying to answer right now. And it's expensive to close stores if you have a lot of stores. But, you know, we've also seen these e-commerce only retailers pop up. They do well. Well, to some extent, right, they reach a certain size and then they kind of stop growing. And so they need to get to that next level of growth and they open some stores. But, like you know, Bonobo sold to Walmart for, for less than the money they raised. I guess that the, the key question is, what's the model now? Who, who's doing it right? Uh, you know, a lot of people think that Zara's doing it right. Uh, they're, you know, owned by a Spanish company, Inditex, and they're expanding really quickly all over the world. They, they can get product to market really quickly and it's on trend and it's, uh, really cheap, frankly. Um, and that seems to be working really well for them. But, you know, H&M was of that same model. H&M just announced that it's going to have the slowest store opening rate in two decades. Um, people really weren't thrilled to hear that. You know, they, they're like, oh, the H&M model, it might be stumbling. So I don't think that there's anyone you can look to and say they're doing it right. I mean, there are a lot of people who are doing pieces of it right. There are a lot of niche brands who, you know, own one piece of your wardrobe and they're doing that really well. But I think gone are the days of the giant retail behemoths of the past. You know, I, I don't know that we're going to see another gap, another ubiquitous company that's going to clothe you from top to bottom anymore. Having said all this, and maybe you can just help me because, of course, here in the Northeast, we've been going through winter weather and oh, really across the country uh, in some areas you have uh, inclement weather. All I see are Canada goose down jackets and Montclair down jackets. And I think to myself, who needs to spend $1,000 on a parka, right? Or $500 on a three-year-old's outfit to stay warm. And yet you seem to see them everywhere. Is that just anecdotal? No, I think that that's, that's very true. And there are some trends that are that are definitely sticking out. So like people will spend up for that jacket with that brand name, or they'll buy the $99 Lululemon pants, but they're, uh, they're mixing those with lower end things, you know, so they're, they're also going to TJ Maxx and, and buying cheaper, you know, jeans, or, or it's, it's sort of like a high low, you, you decide where you want to signal. Yeah. Lindsay Rupp, thank you so much for joining us because uh, truly it was a fascinating story. I definitely recommend reading it. It's on Bloomberg.com or on the Bloomberg. Uh, Lindsay Rupp is a specialty retail reporter for Bloomberg News. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Pim Fox. 
I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.